Welcome to Surgical Readings from SRGS, a podcast brought to you by the American College of Surgeons. I'm your host, Dr. Rick Green, and in this series, we will talk to the editors and experts featured in Selected Readings in General Surgery, a publication that highlights highly relevant and practice-changing information from the world's most prominent medical journals. As busy professionals, we don't always have time to read the most current studies. The goal of this podcast is to bring that information to you, providing key takeaways, insights, and perspectives from leading authorities in all surgical specialties and multidisciplinary areas that affect the surgical patient. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and not necessarily that of the American College of Surgeons. I'd like to welcome you to this uh, segment of Surgical Readings, and we're just delighted to have with us Dr. Lillian Cow, who's professor and chief of the Acute Care Surgery Service at the McGovern School of Medicine. That's at the University of Texas Health Science Center in Houston. Lillian is also the Jack H. Mayfield Endowed Chair of Surgery and also the Vice Chair for Quality in her Department of Surgery. More importantly, for this podcast, she's Associate Editor of this wonderful uh, issue of Selected Readings in General Surgery, along with Dr. Lou Flint. So, Lillian, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I I really want to congratulate you and uh, certainly Dr. Flint and uh, everyone that put together this issue of uh, Selected Readings, because it really talks about all of the important issues of surgical infection that surgeons need to know. And I'd like to begin by asking you, uh, why is it important for general surgeons uh, to be well-versed on all of these relevant uh, surgical issues and in infection? Yes, thank you so much for that question. First, the mainstays of surgical infection treatment really haven't changed over the years. They still remain source control and antimicrobial coverage. Uh, and we all know from multiple studies that initial choice of antimicrobial therapy and prompt administration are important in determining outcome and can affect morbidity and mortality. And so since infectious diseases or other consultants may not be available at the time that you're operating, surgeons are often the ones who are uh, left with the choice of administering the initial antibiotic. And then secondly, I would say that issues like prevention of healthcare-associated infections and antibiotic stewardship are really the responsibility of every person that touches the patient. And there are those that would say it's actually the responsibility of everyone who works in a hospital. Being in surgical quality, one of my colleagues always says that they can tell that a hospital has a good safety culture if they talk to the custodian. And the custodian says their job is to reduce infection by making sure the environment is clean. So I think it's everyone's responsibility and it's incumbent on us all to be at least reasonably knowledgeable about surgical infections. Well, that's a wonderful beginning. Let's let's concentrate a little on the nosocomial infection and, and prevention of infection. You covered a lot of issues uh, in this issue of selected readings. What are the important newer concepts of preventing infection? Yes, absolutely. So I will briefly just say that in the past, uh, we have focused on what we would think of as exogenous sources of infection. So meaning that we have nosocomial transmission of uh, pathogens from surfaces of equipment, uh, instruments, gloves, et cetera. Uh, And that really more recently, we've transitioned to thinking more about endogenous sources. That's not to say that we shouldn't think about 
nosocomial transmission. And in fact, one of the recent trials was the cheetah trial, which showed that if you routinely change your gloves and your instruments at the end of any laparotomy, that there is a reduction in surgical site infections, although the reduction is somewhat modest. The trial was done in mostly low and middle income countries and showed a approximately 3% reduction from 189 to 16% of SSIs. Now, when I talk about endogenous sources, I'm really talking about the microbiome. So for example, uh, the John L. Verdi from University of Chicago and his lab have looked at how the microbiome, so the uh, diversity of and the composition of microbes that live in your gut can affect anastomotic leaks and that there are many factors that can influence the microbiome, even things like diet, opioids, starvation prior to surgery or perioperatively, uh, antibiotics. And so the microbiome provides a novel target for uh, developing new therapies for trying to prevent and treat surgical infections. Uh, and so, and I think it also provides an interesting potential for personalized medicine. So if we can identify the microbes in a person's microbiome, we can potentially spare using broader spectrum antibiotics for those who screen positive and therefore reduce antimicrobial resistance. That's such an important concept. Seems the microbiome is the the buzzword uh, in so many things that we deal with today. We we've known for a long time that giving antibiotics up front prior to doing a surgical procedure is important, and the timing is important. What about resistance? Uh, how should we really modulate these antibiotics to make sure we're not getting resistant organisms? Absolutely. So while I think the prophylactic antibiotics prior to surgery are very important, we certainly shouldn't continue them beyond uh, the appropriate time period. And even though we say for 24 hours, I think there's plenty of data to show that the single preoperative dose is sufficient. But I think we need to be very cognizant about antibiotic resistance, as you mentioned, and not just of bacteria, but also of fungi. So we have Candida auris as an emerging pathogen that tends to be multi-drug resistant. Um, so I think that really we need to not only monitor our own prescribing practices, not to extend prophylaxis beyond the preoperative dose, not to treat certain infections too long, a recent multi-center trial from the Surgical Infection Society, uh, first authored by Rob Sawyer, which we affectionately call the Stop It trial, showed that a fixed dose of post-op antibiotics or post-source control antibiotics for intra-abdominal infections of four days was non-inferior to using clinical criteria, waiting for the patient to be afebrile with a normal white count and tolerating a diet, which takes about eight days. Um, you know, so the stop it trial says four is not inferior to eight days. And so I think we can all try to use less antibiotics and to educate others about these important trials. Well, your, your area in selected reading certainly talks a lot about the concepts of ma managing infection without necessarily doing an operation. And we can't uh, have this discussion without talking about appendicitis. There's been so much written about when to use antibiotics, when to take out the appendix, what should the general surgeon know today? Yes, absolutely. I will disclose that I was a site PI for the CODA trial that you're referring to. So the comparison of outcomes of antibiotic drugs and the appendectomy for acute appendicitis. And I think it is important 
to understand that although both non-operative therapy and appendectomy are now considered to be reasonable options for patients, that we have to know the data. So looking at what is the rate of need for appendectomy if you are randomized to antibiotics, if they were randomized to antibiotics, which is about 49% at four years. Um, that being said, there may still be reasons that someone may choose to have antibiotics on the first go round. I think there are some opportunities for more research, even though the CODA trial was a large, really well-conducted trial. Um, but in the CODA trial, patients who are randomized to antibiotics received a total of 10 days of therapy. Um, and so we don't really know, are 10 days completely necessary? There are trials like the APAC, APPAC, APAC-3 trial that actually randomized patients with mild appendicitis to no antibiotics or placebo versus antibiotics and showed that there was resolution in 87% of patients who received a placebo versus 97% for antibiotics. So I think that there may be patient-centered reasons to give people the option of non-operative therapy, but we all have to understand the consequences. And then lastly, I would just say that in the CODA trial, the investigators did look at the rates of C. diff and they were 0.6% in each arm in the original trial. Well, surgeons also, of course, face the issue of diverticulitis. You cover this beautifully. Uh, in this issue, uh, any specific points about managing diverticulitis, when we should use an operation, when we should treat with just with antibiotics? Yeah, again, you know, even in diverticulitis, there are some trials of not using any antibiotics in the most mild forms. There are at least three randomized trials that suggest that. I think that... Um, at the end of the day, surgeons still need to operate on patients when they have systemic toxicity, hemodynamic instability, uh, peritonitis. Uh, um, well, I mean, even that, I guess, may be arguable, but uh, certainly the traditional um, markers of uh, multi-organ failure, et cetera. Yeah, the, per the principles of surgery still hold forth. You mentioned the microbiome. So uh, one of the areas I want to touch on is prevention of surgical infection. Uh, certainly we talk about antibiotics, but there are other things like vaccines, perhaps other peptides we should think about, maybe even modulation of the uh, gut mi microbiome. What should the surgeon know about this? Yes, I think there are a lot of exciting things on the horizon. Uh, vaccination, as we all know, especially with the recent COVID pandemic, uh, it certainly has been used widely to prevent viral infections. And vaccines also have been used to prevent some bacterial infections such as Bordetella, Paranobacterium, and there are vaccines in development to battle organisms such as Staphylococcus aureus, but I think they are not quite ready for prime time. Additionally, there are antimicrobial peptides that are secreted by plants, bacteria, fungi, human prokaryotic and eukaryotic cells, and they seem to have antibacterial properties as well. They're also secreted by sweat and nasal secretions in humans and actually um, can be related back to even Alexander Fleming's discovery of penicillin. But uh, these peptides are challenging to produce and may have toxicities as well as there aren't enough clinical trials to determine how they can be effectively used to prevent infection at this time. The microbiome, as I mentioned, I think is certainly the area where there's the most buzz, if you will. Um, and certainly I think things like preoperative screening, as I mentioned, um, 
whether it's nasal swabs or rectal swabs to look for resistant organisms, can help to selectively personalize prevention strategies in terms of antibiotic prophylaxis. Uh, there's been talk of adding probiotics to bowel preps, selective decolonization of patients. And then there's even been talk of modulating the microbiome with things like bacteriotherapy, which means to use harmless bacteria to displace pathogenic ones. Well, you know, throughout surgical history, of course, surgeons have always faced the challenge uh, of, of being infected uh, by operating on infected patients. And so, of course, in the early 80s, we talked about HIV. Uh, what do we need to know? How, do, how should surgeons protect themselves? And what are the real issues now affecting surgeons who operate in an infected environment? Yeah, you know, I think while there's many new things on the horizon, many principles, as we've already alluded to, of surgery haven't really changed. And I think certainly the recent pandemics have demonstrated the importance of using personal protective gear. Uh, and I think that the principles of um, being safe, I think communication is also very important, not just to prevent accidental punctures and lacerations, uh, but also there's actually great data that culture and safety culture uh, are linked to infection. So at least one interesting article has shown that hospitals that score higher on safety culture surveys actually have lower surgical site infections. So I think being a good team player, empowering others to speak up if there's something harmful that is uh, potentially causing risk to anybody in the operating room, whether it be the patient or a healthcare provider, I think that um, this is of key importance is, is the teamwork and the communications. And finally, you mentioned earlier in our discussion about certain regulatory issues that surgeons need to help with for their entire hospital milieu, you know, what their hospital is doing, catheter-related infection, surgical site infection. Uh, what can the surgeon do? What can individual surgeons do to make sure their institutions are doing all the right things regarding infectious issues? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great question. I think first and foremost is we need to educate ourselves. As we all know, it is quite challenging to keep up with the literature, which is expanding at an exponential rate. I think this is where there's value, and I'm going to put a plug in now for the selected readings. I think there's value in having others uh, curate the information and um, put it into a digestible form to allow surgeons to stay up to date, because otherwise it's really challenging. I think, as I already mentioned, being a role model for the type of teamwork and collaboration that we want to see from others and really um, modeling this idea of a safe culture uh, that is key to reducing infections. I think we have to think about how we can locally, uh, many surgeons are leaders at their local institutions, we need to think about how we can help to convince others to do the right thing for the right patient at the right time, and really to try to encourage implementation of evidence-based strategies. The fact that we still struggle, at least at my hospital, to get to 100% for hand washing and hand hygiene, despite the fact that we know that it reduces infection transmission, um, means that implementation of even more complex and multifaceted interventions is going to be even more challenging. 
And then lastly, I think we can band together. There's good data that statewide or local collaboratives and coordinated efforts to try to improve quality uh, can be effective. So I think that uh, in multiple ways, we can, as leaders and surgeons, uh, promote prevention of surgical infections. What a beautiful message and beautifully stated. We've been talking to Dr. Lillian Cow, Professor and Chief of the Acute Care Surgery Service at the UT Health Science Center in Houston. Uh, but more importantly for this segment of Surgical Readings, she is the Associate Editor of this wonderful issue on Selected Readings in General Surgery. Lillian, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining us on Surgical Readings from SRGS, a podcast brought to you by the American College of Surgeons. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Please let your friends, trainees, and colleagues know about the podcast. On social media, use the hashtag SurgicalReadings. You can subscribe to Selected Readings in General Surgery at facs.org slash srgs. Options are available for individuals, institutions, and residents. I'm Dr. Rick Green. Until next time, thank you for listening and learning.